and welcome back to The Taproot. This season, we're talking about cultivating your career. And our next few episodes are going to focus just on the decision whether or not to go to graduate school. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. Today's guest is international man of mystery and science, Zen Fox. We discuss his recent paper on the common experience of resolving authorship disputes and then move on to the reasons behind what is known in some circles as GRE exit or Gregsit. For those not in the know, that means the removal of the GRE from graduate school applications. Zen has thought a lot about how we do science and how we mentor, and we have a really interesting discussion about the trade-offs inherent in making these life-changing decisions based on a few likely biased data points. If this topic interests you, listen on. All right, everyone. Our guest today is Zen Fox. He is a biology professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, where he studies brains, behavior, and evolution in crustaceans. Zen got his BS in psychology from Lethbridge, a PhD in biology from the University of Victoria, and then did postdoctoral research at McGill and Melbourne before starting his faculty job. In addition to doing science, Zen thinks and writes a lot about how we do science, a topic near and dear to the taproot heart. Zen writes the Better Posters blog, which dispenses advice on how to improve the posters we present at meetings. But Zen also thinks about some of the more complicated situations we face in contemporary scientific culture. And that's what we have asked him here to talk about today. So Zen, welcome to the taproot. It is a great pleasure to be here, and I have to say I want to thank you for that introduction, which is the nicest possible way of saying Zen doesn't study plants, and Zen wastes a lot of time on the internet. <laughs> well, we were we were dancing around those, those topics a little yeah. bit. You are not the first non-plant person, and so we've learned to hide our disdain for these things that have moving parts. How you justify your research, I don't know. I was going to say that I had a full defense of how plant-like one of the species I study is, because it's a crayfish, which reproduces asexually, it's polyploid, it's an invasive, spreads all over the place, but everybody thinks, oh, it's not that big of a problem because we can just eat them. (laughs) So that's very plant-like, I think. That does. It sounds a lot like honeysuckle. (laughs) It's a weed. I, I study an animal weed, basically. Right on. Okay, so the paper that we're going to talk about today to kick off our conversation is called Resolving Authorship Disputes by Mediation and Arbitration. And it was published in 2018 in Research Integrity and Peer Review. So if you can just give us then a quick summary of the results from this paper, and then we can talk about it further. Absolutely. There's no results. There we go. We're done. Okay. The opinion. <laughs> the, the, yes, the content. The opinion. The content. So point of the paper is that we are in a situation where people are thinking about authorship all the time. That is our bread and butter in academic research. And surprisingly, people don't really talk about it as much as they should. There's a couple of new papers that came out which were talking about the Journal of Science and Engineering Ethics, 
which was talking about the fact that, and this is a quote, researchers fear authorship discussions and often try to avoid openly discussing the situation. So when you do that, you have a situation which is ripe for conflict. And there's tons of, of situations where there's conflict about this. And the current thing that happens when authors get into a fight over a paper is nobody wants to step into that mess. Nobody wants to help. Nobody wants to do anything. And I was sort of reacting to that fact that if you are stuck in an authorship dispute, particularly if you're an early career researcher, a student or anything like that, you might have literally no one to turn to. And everybody just wants to kick it back to the court of the authors and say, you guys work it out. Yeah, there's just this huge leadership or oversight void. Yes, and that sort of situation is incredibly corrosive and incredibly damaging to people. And so what I wanted to do is to actually make a suggestion. And as the title of the paper suggests, I suggested, you know, maybe we should really think about some way that we can incorporate dispute resolution into academic research, academic publishing, which is kind of common for other kinds of fields where there's shared intellectual property disputes. Quite often, these things are not settled in court, but you can have an arbitration process or a mediation process because as much as people sort of, they cringe about the concept of having an arbitrator or mediator getting involved in an authorship situation, I ask you this, do you really want to go to court? Do you really want to try and get a judge to settle an authorship dispute? And I suspect that for most people, the answer is no. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that when we do our responsible conduct of research training and Mm -hmm. talk through scenarios, there's always one or two scenarios that are about author order, author presence on the paper. So it's clearly something that we worry about, but It's also something, as you point out in the paper, that there are not clear rules for what does first author mean and uh, what does last author mean and what does authorship on the paper mean in general. And so it's a situation that is just ripe for conflict, it sounds like. Absolutely. And... And exploitation. One of the things that kind of surprised me when I was writing this paper and that I have seen sort of estimated in a few different papers is how common authorship disputes are. So there's three of us on this podcast, right? And I will say right now that I have never been in an authorship dispute. I've been fortunate because I hate people and I'm a hermit and I don't work on teams that I cannot feed with a pizza. But the odds are one of the three of us would have been in an authorship dispute and it's not me. So guys, which of you has been in an authorship dispute? Raising my hand (laughs) on my, on my, on my first, it worked out very well actually, but there was definitely uh, my first, first author paper was originally a co-first author paper and then I did 90% of the work mm-hmm. and so eventually I said I kind of want to be the the first author here and the other person was willing but but yes and I've had other times they were all worked out I think fairly reasonably well before submission though which is good because that's what you want to have happen right you want to have those things resolved before the the paper is submitted. And I have seen cases where papers have just been retracted entirely from journals because people couldn't agree. 
So one of the things that I really liked when I read this article of yours was this idea of academic authorship as like a limited resource that people are scheming to get consciously or unconsciously, right? It's limiting. It's the key to our success. And it has clear career consequences. And then it's also subject to these big power differentials. So the the most vulnerable people in a laboratory, which are usually going to be the technicians or the undergraduates, are the ones with the least ability to advocate for themselves to get the authorship position that they want. I just I hadn't really thought of it that way. I think that's really important for everyone to think about. It's also true that there are institutional rules that can limit them. My former employer, you had to go through a formal exemption process to get a technician to be an author on a paper, even if they'd done the work, you had to get that approved up the ladder. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that leads us to a point that we really wanted to, to discuss with you, and that is, obviously, the authorship of a manuscript, as Liz said, is, is limiting, but it's also incredibly valuable for undergraduates who are thinking about going to grad school. It's something that you can have that maybe distinguishes your application in the sea of, of applications. And the other things that we wanted to talk about is another one of those factors that is used in grad education, sort of fitting with our season theme about thinking about career stages and, and how you go on to the next step. And that's the concept of the Grexit, or which is short for GRE exit. And lots of grad programs are starting to drop the GRE as a requirement for an application to their grad school, uh, or they're thinking about doing it. And the reasons that they frequently talk about is that it doesn't predict success. And I'm going to put success in quotation marks because I'm not sure what that means. Thank you. It, and it also it disadvantages underrepresented groups and is expensive. So you have more barriers for entry. And so lots of programs are dropping this. And you actually had a letter published in Science addressing this and what that actually means for our our scientific community. And so maybe I'll leave the floor to you to sort of summarize that letter and then I have a ton of follow-up questions for you. Okay, well, you've already hit the introduction, which is about the shortcomings of the GRE and why places are dropping it. But any action that you take when you're thinking about assessment always has unintended consequences. Always. And I was just trying to point out that a lot of the things that people are touting as benefits to the getting rid of the GRE, if you don't actually change the other, th how you think about the other things that you're using to assess students, right. you're not necessarily in a better place in terms of increasing your representation. So, for instance, okay, you take away the GRE, then what are the things that you're looking at for assessment? The GRE tried to solve an important problem, which is that different universities are different. Different places have different standards, practices for grading, so transcripts vary a lot. But it's not, there's also like gender and racial discrimination that's inherent in the GRE as well, right? Uh, yes, that's been documented many, many, many times. Right. And but just taking a grad application package apart, so let's you start with GPA, and as you mentioned, that's that can be different universities will grade on different scales. And certainly students, privileged students who don't have to work, have advantages Absolutely. in spending study time. And, and then 
people's biases in grading are well-documented and well-studied. Then there's letters of recommendation is another thing that's considered. And God knows that's uh, not subject to any type of uh, discrimination or bias. Uh, well, you know, I mean, there's a word for that, and it's called the old boys network. Okay, that's three words, but still, my point stands. And then there is an essay, usually, which has to be read and interpreted by humans who are known to be biased. And also, I mean, I guess I have not served on a grad committee. I know, Zen, you were the head of a grad committee. What, what do you look for when you're reading an essay and when you're judging people? As horrible as this may sound, I think this is true anytime you're looking at applications, what do you look for first? You look for the stupid typos and spelling mistakes because they demonstrate whether a person is fluent with the language to some degree. And yes, that's a potential source of bias. But the other thing that I think it can demonstrate is that the person actually cares enough to get it right. Because when you're talking about an application letter and a, like a personal statement, it's not as though you're writing that under time pressure. It's not like, here, right. sit down, you've got 15 minutes to write this, right? Where people have, people will make spelling mistakes and people will find those mistakes and so forth. But if you can't be bothered to proofread a personal statement, you know, I think that's one of the things that it speaks to care. I think this is something that our program is grappling with a little bit at the moment. Who are we trying to recruit? What are we training them for? And how can we pick the kids, uh, the young adults, sorry, that have the personality traits that we're looking for using some sort of application process. And I think there's a couple of interesting points. One is like, nobody can really say we should keep the GRE, right? I think that's, that's a, it has to go. But one of the things it did do was to provide a sort of numerical evaluation that addressed some of these inequities that might come with a big name school or a letter of recommendation from somebody that you know, well, maybe that could be overcome with a really excellent GRE score. Exactly. So what can we provide now that gives that type of grounded information about somebody's sort of ability or background knowledge? I'm not sure those are two different things that we could dissociate from name recognition I think that when you're looking at this kind of question, I think that nothing in academia makes sense except in light of assessment and how awful it is. And I think that this is the common thread between the two parts of this conversation, whether we're talking about like authorship, like why do we care about authorship? Because that's how we're assessed. Why do we care about the GRE? Because that's how we're assessing our future colleagues, our students. Yeah. And in both cases, the underlying problem is assessment is horrible, but we have to do it. We have to do it for transparency. We have to do it for accounting. We have to do it because resources are not limited. And I think everybody wants to be assessed in a detailed, nuanced way. We want, as authors, we want everyone to read our damn papers. As students, we want a committee to read our personal statement. They want us to kind of look at the whole person, right? Mm. And not just a single score to yeah. toss out half the applications because there's too many applications. But I still think even if we're assessing, the question is, what are we assessing for? And this kind of gets back to the yes. quotations that Ivan put out there. Like, what yes. is success? Like, what are we selecting students to do? 
And I think that one of the things that we did in my program, and I think is fairly common for a lot of programs, is that we asked students in their personal statement to say something about their career goals. Now, we have a master's program, so we have a different set of objectives than a lot of programs in other institutions where, you know, the goals can be different if you have a PhD program. But that's clearly why I think we were getting at why we would ask students, well, what are your career goals? Because to some degree that reflected the exact thing that you're asking about. What do we want our students to do and how do we want them to be successful? So if we have a student who says, uh, I don't know, I just want to keep going to school. <laughs> now, that is not a student who, at the moment, you would say, uh, I don't know, I, you know, that person may not have like a clear goal. But if that person gets in, especially at a like a master's level program like ours, maybe that person by the end of it is going to have the experience and go, yes, here is what I realized I want to do in order to get out. So that student could actually be successful in the program. I want to be just like you. And that student, yes. and that student was me, except I wasn't, I was, <laughs> I had enough privilege and knowledge to know I couldn't say that. So I had a, I'm sure I, I don't know if my, essays were compelling, but I, they at least said, solve the great mysteries of molecular structure. I don't know. I, I actually don't remember what I said. And I certainly know that what I started doing was not what I do now. And so there was no vision for... And especially a lot of programs have rotations yeah. where tons of graduate students come in thinking they're going to do one thing and find something else that is different lab, a different environment, whatever catches their interest, and they end up doing something completely different than they thought they were going to do in the first place. I mean, I guess one of the things I think talking about goals is so important because some of this, the, the cynical view is we're looking for graduates, to, we're looking for a brilliant person to come and work on projects that I'm interested in advancing for small amounts of money for five <laughs> years. And that probably should not be the goal. And aspirationally, <laughs> that's not, I think, what anyone would say is the goal. I think a lot of times that first look at an applicant's CV, there is certainly some of that coloring your viewing of it, especially if it's you know, somebody thinking about your lab. Yes. And I think it's reasonable to think that you want to have somebody that you think is going to finish the program, who's, you know, who's not going to get through a semester and get bored. And honestly, I have a confession here, since we're talking about getting rid of the GRE, is that one of the first things that I did when I came in as a graduate program coordinator is I brought in the GRE. Throw all the stones you want at that. I, I have repenting now. But the reason was not so much because I thought that the GRE was a useful predictor, because we never it was never the primary tool that we used to sort applications anyway. But one of the reasons that I introduced the GRE was because it was, in my opinion, too easy for students to get into our program. Because we had situations where sort of the day before classes, students would come in to me and say, hey, can I be a grad student? And it's like, <laughs> oh, what, was there nothing good on television today? I wanted to include a little more friction in our application process because I didn't want 
students applying to our program because they didn't have anything else to do, right? I wanted a little, I wanted to have something that was going to say, okay, look, this is something that I have planned, I have thought about, I have taken steps to ensure that I am going to get in, not I just filled out an application one afternoon sort of situation. And the GRE was one way to do that. And as it turned out later, a lot of the other problems with the ease of application were fixed. And so that's one of the reasons why our our department is going towards the other end of the spectrum now, and we're not using the, the GRE. Not that we used it a lot in the first place, but there's these kinds of considerations, like as a program director, when you're looking at your program and you're looking at the students that are coming in and you're seeing, okay, why are students not succeeding in the program? Because they are coming in with no plan. So that was one of the reasons why we initially wanted to make it not impossible, but a little harder for students to apply. So what did you do that is not GRE-based to make it harder and make them be more intentional about decision-making for your program? Yeah, that was primarily handled at the graduate office level by having a better application system. They included a, a low application fee. They started to put in a little bit more of a screening process. But yeah, but so what, I mean, I think yeah. this is like the big question. Like if we boot the GRE out, yes. what are we, what metrics are we replacing it with? Since as we've just covered, every other metric is also biased and flawed. So what are, what are some like... Biased and flawed, but not entirely well, Okay, but, but we're still losing information, right? Yes. We're, we're losing information. Yes. So I guess I was wondering, you know, you wrote this great article about authorship and and mm-hmm. looked into other industries about how other industries go about mediating these problems like the TV industry or comic book writing and maybe model graduate admissions on those. I think when you look at a lot of other industries, one of the things that becomes a major part of the application process, I think, is the interview. And different places do interviews in one way or another differently. So some PhD programs in particular, they will fly students in for an interview. They will do that sort of thing. A lot of programs like mine, we don't have the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't have the financial resources to fly students in for a master's program situation. But I think that you can get some of those kinds of things that you get from an interview by being smarter about things like how you structure a personal statement. So for instance, not just say, write a personal statement and maybe address career goals or something like that, but maybe structure it out a little more. Maybe instead of asking them to write a single statement, maybe ask them to answer a structured set of questions about, well, what do you think is exciting in a research field right now, or just in science Mm -hmm. generally? What are the kinds of things that excite you intellectually. Yeah, I like this idea because you're right, it collects more information. And it also gets rid of this sort of 
bias towards students who can run their application past a bunch of people for feedback or who have access to other applications or whose parents are in academia so they already totally get it. Um, That sort of unwritten rule book, like we're basically like providing the rule book to the applicant. Even include some of these other kinds of questions. So if you don't want to do the GRE, I mean, I think that you could still ask different kinds of questions to sort of get a sense of people's style, intellectual style. So I know lots of businesses, for instance, they give applicants what's sometimes called a Fermi problem. So just to explain a little bit, Enrico Fermi was physicist, and he was known for back-of-the-envelope calculations. And so these kinds of problems became known as Fermi problems. So he was kind of infamous for going into his undergraduate physics class and saying, right, how many piano tuners are there in Los Angeles? How could you estimate that, right? And a lot of businesses apparently ask that kind of question. That is like a typical management consulting interview question. Uh, Yeah, and I, I actually read a book about Fermi problems and I got kind of fascinated with them because they really do give you all kinds of issues about like, okay, how does somebody approach solving a problem? Not necessarily that there is an exact right answer, but you can sort of get a sense of how somebody works through a problem. Not that yes, saying that we absolutely. should be asking the piano tuner question necessarily, but just as mm. sort of an example of if you structure an interview, make it so that this is the kind of interview that all your applications are going to get, I think that it can be quite revealing. I mean, we do phone interviews for our faculty positions, and we actually have a standard set of questions that we ask people when we interview them. And again, even though we ask all the candidates the same questions, the answers, if you pick the right questions, can be very, very revealing about what people think about particular sorts of things and their kinds of interests and and so forth. That's a very compelling argument. I do feel a little bit worried because I was just reading a Twitter thread by an African-American employee of Google talking about his attempts to diversify Google and conversations he was having with other Googlers where they were talking about how well Stanford people do on yes. the Google interview. Yes, I saw that. And he, and he said, well, it's it's because Google, uh, Stanford has a class on how to deal with a Google interview, yes. <laughs> which goes back to there is no perfect metrics, but there may some may be better than others. And, and no, may, you know, can we incorporate more of those types of things into our into our process? And I think one of the other things, and this, Liz, I think is kind of getting at what tangentially something you were raising before is, well, what do we want our program to look like? What, do, what, in terms of, we want, when we talk about, in air quotes, success, but there's sort of another level of that, of if you are committed to having a open, diverse, inclusive kind of graduate program, one of the things that you should, I think, consider that places should seriously consider is just all right let's look around at the communities we serve and let's try and mirror that so if we are in a community which is 50 percent women let's look at our graduate program huh it's 75 percent men maybe rather than just worrying about like assessment or anything like that it's like let's just set a target right i am all about quotas man all about it <laughs> you know and, and 
and today, well, just today, the NIH director, Francis mm-hmm. Collins, said, hey, everybody, I don't want to be on panels that are all men anymore. It's th- so if that's one of the things that you value in a program, you do that. Right. This is this is a value added is the diversity of the of yes, the people you know, that are so training. It's like, hey, you'd like Agreed. to have more Hispanics or Latina Latinx or whatever. You specifically, you know, you recruit those people and you put them in. Don't worry about the assessment. You just get them in because we know assessment is imperfect anyway. You know, so to some degree, you know, you you've got to put your money where your mouth is on those kinds of, of issues. And I know that probably I'm going to get people who will say it's a quota system and it's against excellence and all these other sorts of things. But I didn't say this is the only way, but I said, think about it. You know, it's something to consider. I think that we have to get over the idea that a, that there is this standard of excellence that you can actually define consistent, correctly, accurately. Yeah. And B, that it is a, has to be a trade-off of any type to say we want a more diverse community that reflects our larger society and we want excellent science. Those are, those are both quite valuable. Take students who may not have had all the privilege advantages that we had and you should be able to turn them into great scientists. Absolutely. So then this has been superb. I don't think we have solved everything, but I think it's hopefully been a very uh, enlightening conversation for both students who are thinking about grad school and those of us who are involved with grad programs. I would be remiss in having you on the podcast and not having you at least tell us a little bit about your stupendously, wonderfully awesome website that I is betterposters.net or .com. I can't remember. Just search better posters. You'll find it. (laughs) Okay. So tell us about Better Posters before we before we wrap up. So Better Posters is a now decade-long running blog, mostly weekly, in which I talk about conference poster design primarily and other aspects of the conferences and doing poster sessions and so forth, mostly focused on design because, if I'm going to be blunt, there's been a lot of ugly-ass posters that I've looked at over my career and I have made over my career, and so I really wanted to defend against that. And I am currently trying to compile some of that knowledge into a book, which will be about poster designs and sessions and that's the plug for the book and the the (laughs) blog and one of the things that it has been sort of the the mantra of the blog which i think is again relevant to the issues we've been talking about today with talking about assessment and and so forth is the name of the blog is better posters it's not perfect posters it's about improving things and i've always for, for many years, one of the my mantras has been constant improvement is the scientific way. Constant improvement is the scientific way. That's how you get at these problems is not by trying to fix them all in one go, but by chipping away at them little by little by little by little. And so the poster blog is kind of one representation of that <laughs> philosophy. I found Zen site probably eight or nine years ago. And I do feel that it has made my posters better, but it is good to hear the better and not perfect mantra because every time I make a poster quickly, I think, oh my God, if this ever made it onto (laughs) Zen's site, he would be just like ripping it apart. 
I don't rip apart. I make suggestions. You, you do. You absolutely do. And people are, and I think it's a great process because one of the things you do is someone will send you their poster and you will make alterations to show how you could make it better. And I think that's such an illuminating process for people. I, I really recommend the blog. Well, thank you for that plug. Your check is in the mail. That's right. So with that, Zen, how can people reach you if they want to get in touch to talk about authorship, if they want to talk about Gregzit, if they want to talk about better posters? What's what's the best way to get a hold of you? Look, my name is Zen Falks. Do you think there's that many of me in science? <laughs> I am the easiest person in the world to find. That's right. So that's, that's F-A-U-L-K-E-S, Zen Falks. I am... Dr. Zen on Twitter, D-O-C-T-O-R-Z-E-N, for you Americans. For the rest of the world, it's D-O-C-T-O-R-Z-E-N, the part of the world that says the last letter of the alphabet correctly. And I am also on drzen.net is my homepage, where you can find links to blogs, papers, and other things that I have done over time. And Liz, how can people find you and get in contact? I'm on Twitter, and my handle is at eHaswell. And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I, and you can find the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And with that, Zen, thank you very much for a really good conversation. Yeah, thanks, Zen. Thank you so much for having me on. Anytime, place, I will be there awesome. for you guys. Awesome, thank you. brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Katie Rogers. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron scholar Juniper Kiss. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us out with transcripts. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week. Bye.